bringing good news to the afflicted. It's an idea that's kind of gone out of vogue today, I think. In the popular narrative today, we'd rather keep the afflicted as far away from us as possible, as far away from our consciousness as possible. And this is kind of understandable because who wants to complicate their life by getting involved with the afflicted, right? Kind of, we get that, don't we? And yet Jesus faced a very different context. The afflicted were unavoidable in his context. They were everywhere. So let's think about the scene in Jesus' day. When Jesus was on the scene in Israel, uh, things were not going so well for Israel at that time. They had been an occupied nation for several generations by then and they were living the humiliation of no longer being sovereign in their own land. Added to that political struggle, there was the general malaise of a poor society, which was just common in those days. Medicine was not really a thing yet, so people died of diseases that we commonly cure today with a pill or something like that. Um, Agriculture was developed, but not quite like it is today, so food was never abundant in the way we experience. You don't just go down to a supermarket in those days and pick up what you need. And there was no real social security net, even though there were laws in Israel that were supposed to create that sense of social security, they never really uh, did what they were intended. And so everywhere you turned in Israel, it was unavoidable to see need. There was a lot of suffering and the afflicted were genuinely everywhere. And then Jesus comes along. And it says that he came back into Galilee full of the Spirit, which is a a signifier that things were really starting to happen. People had heard about Jesus. He was receiving praise from various places and no doubt rumours of his healings were spreading around, perhaps being uh, embellished a little bit and people were expecting amazing things from this man. He also had this very unique take on scripture, explaining things in a way that people hadn't heard before. And so he comes to his hometown in Nazareth and he was invited to address the synagogue. What wonderful insight might this holy man, this revivalist preacher, bring to the people? Perhaps the afflicted might yet have something to hope in and no doubt expectations would have been high. But when it comes to matters of being a prophet... Hometown is not an advantage. Uh, Paul read to us the first half of a story and if you read on in the next few verses, you'll see the end of the story concludes with the townsfolk, the synagogue people, basically wanting to throw Jesus off a cliff. They wanted to lynch him. It appears that he might have challenged them a little bit too directly and they decided to uh, not listen to that message but to attack the messenger, as it were. Because when you're a prophet, your hometown is a disadvantage. People had no mystique about Jesus because he'd grown up amongst them and their kids had played with him when he was younger and they knew his family and he was really just one of them. And it's really difficult to believe too much in somebody who is just like you in a funny kind of way. I have a friend and uh, he's written a number of books 
and spoken around the world and uh, influenced a lot of people and is, has been very highly regarded by quite a lot of people around the world. Uh, last year I attended his 60th birthday and people got up and gave speeches about how uh, this man's ideas and teaching and relationship with him had changed their lives. And his uh, 90-year-old mother, 90-something-year-old I think, chimed in, she's sitting in a, a wheelchair, they go, don't say too much about him, he'll get a big head. <laughs> and, and you get this sense that when you know somebody really well, it's hard to see past their humanness and, and the kind of down-to-earthness of it. And that, that was a, certainly the case in Nazareth. And so when Jesus starts to say things that challenge the people, they go, hang on a minute, who are you? We know who you are, how dare you, kind of thing. But what was his message? What upset them so much? Jesus picks up a word from Isaiah, Isaiah in Isaiah 62, I think it is, and um, he reads that scroll, which was a common thing to do. You go into the synagogue and you pick out the appropriate scroll and you read it. And uh, he did that, except he stops halfway through the passage. In fact, halfway through a verse, it seems. It just... It's not the place to stop. He should have at least read to the end of the... So he stops and he puts the scroll back and he sits down. It's almost like this was a device to get people to go, hang on a minute, that's not where that ends. And he, there's this pregnant pause. I mean, in these few words that Paul read to us, there's quite a lot of drama going on. And just when everybody is focused on him, Jesus announces that that scripture has been fulfilled today in their hearing. And I could imagine being there going, hang on a minute, good news for the afflicted? Rome's still here, we're still captive, you know, still lots of poverty around. What kind of good news is this for all the afflicted? What manner of release is there when there's no political relief, as it were? And sight to the blind? What, how's that been fulfilled in our midst? I mean, bringing, to, bringing sight to anyone is a marvellous thing. Uh, the main benefit, of course, goes to the one who's been blind, but it's good for the whole society in a way. And we've got uh, people like, well, Fred Hollows was a, a pioneer and his uh, foundation continues to do incredible work around the world bringing sight to blind people. Um, is that part of the fulfilment of Jesus' prophecy? And how did that work in his day? I mean, Jesus healed a few people and gave sight to them. It, was that the full extent of what he was talking about? Or is Jesus talking about a different blindness altogether? And what about freedom for the oppressed? In Jesus' day, oppression was everywhere and obvious. The political structure was oppressive as Rome had enforced its rule and occupation on Israel, but there was economic, structural economic oppression as well. It was a subsistence economy and very few people were doing well and most people were really struggling and uh, people found it hard. You know that prayer that Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, it wasn't a metaphor, it was a heartfelt prayer. We just want enough to get through today. And in Jesus' day, even the religion had become oppressive. 
Rabbis were ruthless in their inspections of sacrificial animals, which meant pre-approved sacrifices were on sale at the temple. If you want to make sure your your sacrifice is going to be approved by the rabbi, get one of our pre-approved sacrifices at a premium price, of course. And uh, all the interactions in the temple had to be done in a particular coinage. They wouldn't use the, the Roman coins. They would consider that to be uh, blasphemous or something like that. So you had to change your everyday money for temple money. And the money changers obviously took their cut. You can see why Jesus in the temple overthrew the tables of the money changers and let the animals free. He was saying, no, this system is oppressive. You're shutting people out from worship. But did Jesus change all that? How is this word fulfilled? Israel had been waiting a long time for the fulfilment of this word. It was some 400 years earlier that Isaiah had introduced these themes. Uh, Israel had returned from exile and there was great hope that things would change then, but then they stayed in their land, but invaders came and oppressed them even while they were in their land. And you could forgive them for giving up hope after 400 years. That's how many generations? Like lots and lots of generations. You think back 400 years, well, there wasn't you know, European settlement in Australia 400 years ago. That's a long time. And you could excuse the people for giving up hope. And yet, when John the Baptist comes, you, you get a sense of how ready they are to hope. This man, he's saying marvellous things. He wasn't even doing miracles. He was just saying some stuff and people were going out and getting baptised. And then Jesus comes on the scene and people flocked to him. They hadn't given up hope. They were really hoping that God would bring about something remarkable. In Isaiah's day, the people thought their liberation would be found in returning to the land. In Jesus' day, people thought their liberation would be found in sending the Romans out of their land. What is the nature of the freedom that Jesus' good news brings? Certainly it has political implications, but it's so much bigger than just political. It has economic implications, but it's so much bigger than simply economics. And it has religious and theological implications, but again, it's beyond religion and beyond theology. The freedom of Jesus' good news is a freedom that emanates from the deepest part of our being and transforms everything as a consequence. I've told you a bit about my conversion story in different bits and pieces over time. Um, When I was converted, I I heard a voice of God, as it were, or had a, a sense from God that if I gave my heart to God, God would never let it go. And I experienced the freedom from my fear of rejection. That was my oppression at the time. And as I've gone on in my journey of life and faith, further aspects of freedom have become apparent to me. This good news continues to set me free in deeper and deeper ways. A freedom from jealousy of my neighbour. It's a wonderful thing not to be jealous of what other people have. Just to be glad they have stuff and glad of what you've got. Uh, Freedom from the need to control absolutely everything in my life. I used to be quite the control freak. 
And, you know, it makes your world smaller and smaller. And if you can accept the fact that, you know what, most things are outside your control and really accept that and just engage with what's happening, there's a deep, deep freedom in that and many other things besides. See, Jesus fulfills Isaiah's words. He brought very tangible good news to the people of his day because he spoke and demonstrated the nearness of God's kingdom. He did actually release uh, crippled people from the captivity of their disability. You know, he actually healed people and gave actual physical sight to blind people and uh, the way he was with people just gave them the sense of the freedom that would be there if everybody related to me the way this man relates to me. Is that what upset the, the townsfolk of Jesus' day? That he really was bringing these things? Probably not so much. I think, and if you read the passage, and it's a bit naughty of me to be preaching in part of a passage that didn't get read this morning, but that's your homework. Go home and read the few verses that follow on after what Paul read to us this morning. Uh, Jesus puts a particular spin on things as he speaks to the people because they, they start to marvel at his words and then uh, he knows that they're thinking, so what are you going to do for us? And he makes reference to a couple of things that happened in the Old Testament. He talks about Elijah going to a widow at Zarephath during a drought and his presence there, the prophet's presence with the widow, sustained her. And Jesus says, you know what, at the time when Isaiah did that, there were thousands of widows in Israel. But I, Isaiah, um, Elijah, sorry, I'm talking about, Elijah only went to one of them. So thousands of widows, Elijah only went to one of them. And you know, Elisha, who came after Elijah, he healed Naaman the Syrian of his leprosy. And at that time, there were thousands of people in Israel who had leprosy and Elijah only healed one of them. So what does that mean? And in, in that, there's a sense that God is not random. God doesn't just do whatever, whenever. There's a sense of purpose and meaning in what God's doing. If he heals one person, he does it on purpose. He's trying to say something and tell, tell you something. God only attended these two particular cases to make a point, to say something to the people. There is intent and purpose in God's actions. And the inference there being, and there's no intent or purpose in me healing anything here today for you. And the people didn't like that at all. Because Jesus didn't perform any magic tricks, as it were, for the people. And that's what enraged the locals. How dare he come here and say those things and not perform for us and this kind of thing. They wanted Jesus to do his miracles and to impress everyone and he dared to suggest that that wasn't on God's agenda for the day. Now I think this is a really challenging thing in our faith journey because God doesn't do what we expect. God is God. We are not. And God will do what God will do and sometimes it takes us time to work out what is it that God is doing Rather than challenge our own assumptions, sometimes we'd rather challenge that God is God. We're so fixed on how we think things should work out that we would say to very God, get out, we'll kill you. So how good 
is Jesus good news? Often it doesn't mean what we think it means. I think of that uh, Princess Bride line. (laughs) I won't go there. (laughs) It does not mean what you think it means. (laughs) Its implications are often different for each person and each situation. Some need liberation from scarcity and hunger. Yet at the same time, some need liberation from greed and indulgence. Both are liberation, but they look very different. Some suffer from exposure to the elements, but others suffer under the smothering weight of all their possessions. If you opt to participate in the good news, it will mean for you things that you could not have anticipated. The good news will challenge our deepest assumptions about what is good. What are the things that hold us captive? What do we need to be released from? Where are we blind to what God wants us to see? Where do we turn away? Where do we avert our eyes? Where do we prefer not to see? How do we participate in the dynamics of oppression in our world, either as those who are oppressed or as those who do the oppressing? I had an area of blindness for a long time that God continues to want to open for me. Uh, I have a preference to avoid confrontation. It's so deeply ingrained in me and at the same time it's something that I wish I was free from. There's a tension within myself. So often uh, I choose to see myself as being kind to another person when I don't want to confront them. This is my way of seeing. Uh, Well, I could have said that to them but it would have upset them and I didn't want to upset them. So I'm being kind. I'm not being scared. And... Over a period of time, God has shown me, actually, no, I'm being kind to me because I didn't want to say truth to somebody when that would have been the most helpful thing to do. God is opening my eyes to an area that I've been blind. And I think for each of us there are things that we prefer not to see and God will open our eyes if we really want that kind of good news and we can take responsibility for our behaviour and not blame other people as is our want to do. So as our attention turns to this very simplified meal, that's symbolic for us today, we break bread and we drink from a cup, let us be aware that our host desires only good for us. But it's a good that goes beyond our own conception of good. Our host knows what's good more than we do. He knows what the good news means for us and it's only a matter of time before that good news will deeply challenge our sense of what is good. Jesus does bring release to the captives, sight to the blind and freedom to the oppressed. As we gather around this table, let us fully enter into that good news and invite Jesus to bring those things to us that we might bring them to the world, to the glory of his name. Amen.